0: day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Today, my special guest is Sidney Lee, and we will be talking about his newest book, What Shines? Aging with Optimism and Appreciation. Retrospe- retrospective of a long life and an already inimitable <laughs> career in poetry, Sidney Lee's What Shines? asserts and asks in equal measure. In older age, he affirms the luster of fruit long labored for, a resilient and happy marriage, the rewards of parenthood and later grandchildren, a profound intimacy with northern New England, the environment, the seasons, the people, home, and time. But he also transmits the escalating urgency of answering the fundamental question. At this late hour, what light do we have to see by? What light will outlast us? Sidney Lee's 23rd book over the past four decades represents why he was named Vermont's poet laureate and received the Governor's Award for Excellence in the Arts from, Vermon- from the Vermont Arts Council. Written primarily during the shuttered time of the COVID pandemic, Lee's book repre- reflects, excuse me, deeply in what shines on aging and is full of reminiscence, along with an occasional awareness that our memories can play tricks on us. For more information, you can visit his website, which is sydneyblee.net. And that's S-Y-D-N-E-Y-L-E-A dot net. And with that, I'd like to welcome Sydney to the show. Good day, Sydney.
1: Good day. It's uh, very good to be here, Robert.
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, our conversation. I'm, I'm not as far along in that journey as you are, but I'm I'm right up there and kind of doing the the retrospective book as well. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to kind of getting your perspective. So um, you just recently turned 80, and you're releasing your 23rd book. It's less recently
1: than I'd like to say. I'm about to turn
0: 81, but uh, that was a milestone. Oh my goodness! I bet it was. I bet it was. Yeah, yeah. Another, you check another box in those, you know, those boxes where it says, okay, "Where are you?" And you kind of go up a box then during those milestones. <laughs> wow. Well, well, so, it
1: would have been unimaginable to me even 20 years ago. But here I am. <laughs> I should okay, be, gl- I should well, be glad I am.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is true. That is true. Being on this side of the, the grass is is always a good thing. So yes, it is. um, So now, as you reflect back, I mean, this is you know, it's a 23rd book, which is obviously a a wonderful collection of writing. So, are you surprised by how prolific you have been?
1: I'm I'm kind of stunned by it uh, because I always feel God, I ought to get something accomplished. I think that comes down from my mom who always told me I had to apply myself, but I wasn't sufficiently applying myself. Uh, uh, and then when I look back and I see I've written this so many books, and I've got uh, two more coming next year, one a book of essays and uh, one a second novel, uh, I'm surprised that maybe I wasn't wasting my time all that time. I must have been scribbling something because uh, these pages are, uh, are mounting up. But I, it's true that you know, if I most of my poems, uh, most of my uh, books have been uh, collections of poetry. This is the sixteenth. And uh, if somebody had uh, talked with me or observed me and uh, seen my manner of life when I was, oh, say, a typical, witless American male of eighteen, and uh, been told that uh, I would uh, eventually turn into a a career poet, they would have probably thought you were on some sort of hallucinogen, uh, because my interest was, uh, my interest was, uh, uh, I wanted to be a professional hockey player, and I wanted to find the girl of my dreams, and I, that one I did come true, but uh, I uh, also was interested in sneaking contraband beer wherever I could, Um, that turned into a kind of a dangerous thing later in life, was fortunately in the rearview mirror. but, uh, it just, uh, it just, to this day, it, it astonishes me that, uh, that things change that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you it sounded like a typical mental youth, you know, in the U.S. And, and the hockey in particular being in the Northeast, Um, I went to a school in, uh, Oswego, SUNY Oswego, and they had a great hockey team, and so I'm, you know, very aware how, how hockey plays, ice hockey, you know, plays, uh, uh you know, a uh, major influence in, in the area.
1: Definitely. No doubt about it. Uh, interestingly enough, I still am something of a sports fop. I like to watch professional sports, but hockey's the one I don't watch. I watch basketball and I watch baseball. I watch a little football. I'm not terribly interested in that. But uh you know, my athletic accomplishments, such as they were when I was a kid, were all hockey and football. So it was kind of odd that I moved in this other so the direction. It's the influence of the, of my children, really, that, and their interests.
0: Uh, yeah, that that would help. Now, how, when, at what point in your career did poetry start taking hold, you know, in, in your interest?
1: Well, uh, th- th- that's interesting. I, uh, I, I seem to have, I went from a promising beginner to a late bloomer, uh, early. I, my first book wasn't published until I was 40. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it's an interesting story. I, I'm I old enough that when I was in school, there was uh, no such thing as a creative writing course. And there weren't very many MFA programs. I mean, now they're, they're sort of like mushrooms in the forest. But in those <laughs> days, uh, Iowa, Stanford, uh, I think Arkansas, but there were very few of them. When I graduated from college, uh, it I, I had done some writing uh, on my own, fiction. Uh, pretty much for myself, because both my roommates, were wonderful guys, but they were, uh, they were hard scientists and weren't particularly interested in bell letters, if you will. Uh, so, uh, at any rate, when I graduated, I said, well, I, I gotta, I gotta figure out doing something for a living. So I, I went and I, uh, I taught uh, high school French and English for a year, which was just long enough to indicate to me that there wasn't enough money in the world for me to work that hard and to deal with <laughs> everything that kids in their adolescence are going through. Uh I, so I elected to go to graduate school and uh I uh I, I ended up getting the relatively very cushy uh position as a as a professor of English at, at Dartmouth, but uh When I first arrived, I was what they call ABD, all but dissertation. I hadn't finished my dissertation, so uh, I had to do that. I was not even called an assistant professor, I was called uh, uh, an instructor. And I was – this uh, uh, doctoral thesis of mine is an inscrutable thing, even to me. Uh, I came under the influence of uh, critical theory, which was just starting to raise its head, and I – I, I read a, a comment by Flannery O'Connor, which uh, I resonated with me. She said that I am a person constitutionally innocent of theory, but with certain pro- preoccupations. That describes me pretty well too. I, I had been talked into writing this abstruse uh, uh, thing, and uh, I was just having a devil of a time with it. And the chair of the department came into my office one day. He was a, a, a very nice guy and he remained my friend to a, uh, for a long time, uh, for the rest of his life really. He said, you know, you gotta finish that dissertation. I said, I, I am, I am trying for, and I am just, I you know, it's really, it's really a bugaboo. He said, well, I, I got something I think will help you. And I said, what was that? And he said, well, uh, the kids are clamoring for a course in creative writing, uh, and uh, we'll give them one, you know, in all genres, and uh, you can teach it. And I looked at it, and my jaw dropped. I said, why the heck should I teach it? And he looked back at me and said, well, you know, it's not a real course. Uh, you know, just kind of read their stuff and pat them on the head and so on. Uh, you don't have to front hair or anything, so that will give you more time to finish your dissertation. So I started teaching this course using that verb very loosely, and, uh, I found myself uh, falling in love with these kids, you know, trying to get this awkward stuff down on the page, and, and, and uh, you know, sometimes succeeding more often, uh, uh, like me to this day, failing, uh, and, uh, it ignited a, a writing enthusiasm in
0: me. Am I
1: answering at two great lengths here, Robert? Because I, I, oh no! I, I, no, no, I
0: think
1: okay. this is wonderful. <laughs> at all events, yeah. uh, I, uh, I, now I take a detour in this narrative because from a very, had a connection to a very remote part of the state of Maine, uh, through my father who was in the Forest Service there, uh, after college in the 30s before he joined the military. And, uh, I was lucky enough, and I use that word advisor, I was lucky enough to know men and women who, were they alive today, would be between 120 and 130 years old. Uh, and they had lived up there, uh, everybody was a lump, all the men were lumberjacks, and, uh, and, uh, and all the women, I mean, to call them halfway upwives would be ludicrous. I mean, the, the amount of work that went into uh, you know, keeping families fed, keeping wood in the, in the stove, uh, uh, doing some building, dressing game, whatever it might be, uh, was really pretty astonishing. And these people didn't have any, uh, imported, uh, entertainment except for books perhaps, and many of them couldn't even read. Uh, uh, so they had to make their own, uh, you know, and lumber camps and, uh, kitchens and general stores and what have you and, well one general store. And uh I was a fascinated listener to all of it. Um, they were just fabulous back on Thursday. They had to be because, you know, those tales became a kind of community property that were shared around, embellished. The truth of them didn't matter. It was the delivery and the content. and stuff. Well, all my life I've had those voices in my in my head and uh I thought, well yeah, I really like to capture capture the flavor of some of those tales. But I I knew that I wasn't Laura Cather or, or William Faulkner or, or
0: Mark Twain.
1: Mm-hmm. I I wouldn't be able to do it in dialect without sounding condescending. Though I knew the dialect mm-hmm. well and could imitate it, and I didn't feel a bit of condescension to these people. Nothing but admiration the the valor and mm-hmm. hard work. That, uh, that, so. I came up with this theory um that i would uh tr- try and capture the flavor of of, of their narration uh in poetry uh thinking that maybe without having to imitate it I could catch some of the rhythms and the cadences uh of their speech mm-hmm. so very on very early on my uh my uh poems were were very narrative uh one called the Feud, 15 pages long, uh, was all about mm. that sort of character. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, my poetry has become less specifically narrative since, but I've always I've always held on to old-fashioned, uh, you know, kind of conventional what I call uh, uh, the, what I call narrative value. That is to say, if I read a poem, I like to know who's talking. To whom, where, and why? Now, not every poem will answer all those questions, but I, I see so much contemporary poetry, and I, I you know, I've been doing this a long time, and I, I look at it, I, I, look at it from every angle, and I don't know what the heck is going on, and, uh, you know, and I just think that what I call those narrative values, it doesn't even have to dumb things down, but you have to invite the reader in, you know, she or he. Should feel, well, at least I know that's a chair you're sitting in, and at least I know it's a male speaker or a female speaker, whatever it may be. Uh, so I've, I've tried to remain, uh, I've tried to remain accessible because the other kind of poetry certainly doesn't move me, and I, I don't know how it moves anybody, you know, it's so inscrutable, uh, much of the time. So that's, uh, that's like the, <laughs> and that even that is a reader's digest story, uh, story of how it all happened but uh, I, that's probably enough for now.
0: Well that's good. No, and I appreciate that. You know, I I've, I've just I always find it fascinating to uh hear the The journey of my guest, you know, and so many times there are, you know, twists and turns and, you know, happenstance or luck, you know, like you mentioned, that will guide the journey, you know, and, you know, the one thing, yeah, and that's the one thing I, you know, just hope the listeners will, will take from listening to the shows is the fact that, you know, no matter where they are in their individual journey, you know, they can look forward to some twists and turns and maybe even create some, you know, that they want, Um that it's, it's not over yet.
1: Yeah, there's no, there's no such thing as a simple life. Even the dullest person has extraordinary things that's happened to him or her. I, I, I think, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, I'm in a 12th group where we say, you know, there is no such thing as coincidence. I'm kind of agnostic on that, but uh, I, I, some people say coincidence is a way of, of God's remaining anonymous. At any rate, uh, you know, uh, my life was it, just indescribably influenced by the fact that my when I met my wife, uh, she had just graduated from college, and she was on her way to law school in, in uh, New York. And... Uh, she said, "Well, I think I'll take a take a year off." And she worked as a bartender in a local tavern. I uh, had not too long before um, been offered a job in, in, at, at a good little college called uh, Quitman in uh, in uh, the northwest in Washington. And I I was on the point of getting on a, uh, a plane to go out and visit with them. When I got the offer from Dartmouth, I had wanted to be in New England, but the jobs were scarce now, if I'd gotten that job or if she'd gone to law school in New York, forty years plus of my life would have been very, very different uh you know that that was that's just an instance of what you're talking about when you when you mention luck uh uh you know a, a lot of people you know who who will look down on people who've had rough struggles or something well you know, they're they're inferior in terms of their effort or brain or whatever. Sometimes it's just it just bumble up that steers people uh uh you know, in in a bad direction and lucky luck that it steers them the other way and I've been lucky enough in fact to be one of the latter.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well you know I when it comes to coincidence or synchronicity, um, I'm one who I, – I kind of look at the idea of you know, life being that uh, quantum approach where there's – it's full of possibilities, you know, and depending on where you put your attention is when you bring that possibility into reality, and that, you know, there are times when – you know, a particular possibility involves others, you know, and, you know, and if you make the, like you take with your wife, you know, make the 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 choices and, you know, take advantage of, you know, a particular path, you know, then that is, you know, kind of that's what is determinant, you know, on what's to happen. So, you know, it's, you know, I personally love coincidence and, you know, to me it's it's um, it's a, a way to um, generate, for me, to generate awareness, you know, awareness of something, you know, kind of bigger than myself in the sense of, you know, this is just very odd, you know. It's, it's, it's not logical that this should happen like this, but yes, it did. and So yeah. I kind of, I usually take pause, <laughs> you know, say thank you for, you know, for that little insight, and, and then... You know, move on. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give uh,
1: yeah, one part of my story, which I think is kind of uh, amusing, but it indicates the uh, lucky coincidence. Yeah. Well, I finished that dissertation, uh, yeah, and uh, and I haven't opened it since. I haven't wanted to look at it. Uh, well, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's not quite true. I did open it once, and that, and that's part of the story. Uh, I was told, uh, uh, having been made an assistant professor at the end of uh, my second stint, uh, uh, as one, I was told, uh, that, uh, uh, by the same very nice chair, he said, you know, we have this, I, I'm glad it didn't apply when I was your age, but we have this, uh, publisher parish, uh, 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 uh rubric around here, and I said, well, I have a, book of poems uh, under contract. And you said, Well, just just as it was clear that just as creative writing course was not a real course, so creative <laughs> publishing was not real publishing. Uh and in those days, uh really all you had you didn't have to write a book that nobody would read, just a couple of articles and put them in learned journals and that, that that would get you over the publisher parish. So I went to the, uh, reserve reading room. I always liked it because there usually weren't very many people there. Uh, to, uh, I thought to myself, well, I, I will open the dissertation and see if there are a couple of chapters I can, I can use. Now, I didn't make her name up, and neither did Charles Dickens, but the woman who oversaw the, the, uh, reference room was <laughs> a woman named, uh, Mrs. Ms. Wormwood. And she was a very severe person. I don't think she smiled in all her, however many years it was. So I opened up my dissertation to see what I might be able to glean from it, and I really felt a kind of vertigo. And I said out loud, not meaning uh, there was nobody else in the room but her, but that didn't cut any the with her. I, I didn't mean to say it. just came out of my mouth and said, this is not what I want to do when I grow up. So I was already 35 or whatever. Uh, he was, says <laughs> she. And at any rate, uh, I closed the dissertation, and I said to myself, "I'm going to keep on writing poetry. It's what I want to do. It's what I want to teach, and I'll let the chips fall as they may." Well, I did not get tenure at Dartmouth, and uh, I had one grace year to look for a, look for a job. At this point there was a new chairman, uh, he didn't like me and I didn't like him. Nothing had ever been said overtly, but, uh, I, mm-hmm. I really didn't like this guy. And he, I, I think he was trying to, uh, take out his dislike by the teaching schedule that he, uh, he gave me the next year, which was all freshman English, including remedial English, you know, 50 blue books mm-hmm. a week and so on and so forth. Well, I, I got that the schedule in the mail back in those days. I looked at it, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to go see him because this is just unjust. And I uh, was driving in, I said, you know, uh, now, keep your temper. Uh, I was pretty vol. I'm not anymore, but I was very volatile. Now, don't be volatile. You know, you just be reasonable. Well, to make a long story short, uh, <laughs> uh, I said, you know, I, I really don't want to teach you courses." course well, those are the courses you're going to teach. He said, looking at me very severely. And uh, uh, I said, uh, finally I said, well, no, I'm not going to teach those courses. He said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not, because I'm not coming into this building ever again. And I said I was (laughs) a fall asleep. He said, you're downtown. You want to be looking over your shoulder, pal, because I might be right behind you. Uh, and I got into my car and I drove out to where I lived it was about 20 minutes away and all the way home I said, what in the hell have you done? You moron. <laughs> you just blew your employment year. What you gonna do? And here's the coincidence. I was, I walked up, uh, my steps, uh, uh and, uh, I, the phone was ringing. I picked it up and it was the chair of the department at Middlebury College, uh, uh, in Vermont. At that at that time, I was living right on the Vermont border, but this was over in Vermont. And uh, he said, you know, we have a sudden job opening, and it was for sad reasons. A fine young novelist named Tom Gavin had a rare, rare blood disease, and he had to take the year off. Well, he, he didn't last a year. He, he, uh, he passed mm-hmm. away. Uh, but I was supposed to take his courses, which I did. Uh, after which they asked if I would stay on as permanent faculty, which I did, and uh, I taught there for many years until I think it was about uh, 2000. uh, It was a graduate program which included a writing track back at Dartmouth of all places, and they invited me back. That was closer to home, and I taught there for another 10 years. Uh, But, uh, you know, talk about not about lucky coincidence, that that's the very thing I needed—the very thing that I thought I'd thrown away—presented itself uh, seamlessly, and I—I I, uh, I went on from there. Middlebury uh, had more of a tradition of uh, writer professors than, than Dartmouth did. That's everything has changed in both places now, but that was, you
0: know, in uh, nineteen seventy-six. Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, that was that case of when one door closes, another opens like immediately <laughs> <laughs> happens. It doesn't
1: happen all the time, but it
0: isn't that <laughs> No, it doesn't. It would be wonderful if it did. But but you know, it it does. To, to know that it does happen. Yeah, yes. can be encouraging for some folks. Um now we're gonna take a break in, in a few minutes, um, Sydney. But um you mentioned, you know, your Earlier work, you know you had that one fifteen page more of a narrative style um, um and and then you also mentioned that you know some poetry today it's like you know what <laughs> kind of, what is yeah. what that what's going on here um so how would you describe you know just like i guess the state of poetry i mean is you know, oh. the changes that you've seen, and, and maybe even is there an increased interest that you've seen in poetry? Well,
1: you know, it's interesting, uh, Robert, amongst other things. Uh, I I read uh, that during the whole COVID pandemic, the sales of poetry skyrocketed comparatively. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> at, at the, the sales of poetry, you know, are a really, really hot like our national and very excellent uh poet laureate Adam moon uh, uh
0: it, if
1: she sells, just knocks the top off for poetry sales. It's, it's fewer than people who show up at an exhibition game with the Redsnox on uh, April somewhere <laughs> uh, so everything has to be kept in uh, everything has to be kept in uh perspective, but apparently mm-hmm. those sales are really went up, and the state of poetry is is so. I I have a friend, uh, um, Jonathan Holden, uh, who taught at Kansas State for many years, uh, and uh, he was a poet critic. um, And uh, in one of his books he said, uh, Poetry today is that assembly of words that the author chooses to call a poem. And Hmm. there are prose poems. Now, they're proliferating uh, at this point. But they're not that new. I mean, Baudelaire was doing them in the middle of the 19th century. There are uh, uh, sort of classical formal poems uh, in the Robert Frost manner. Uh, there are uh, uh, there are uh, so-called, I don't see the point of these so-called erasure poems where you stick a, a document of any kind and just erase certain words until they take on a completely different uh Meaning, um uh, there are, uh, poems that are computer-aided, uh, and I'm not even talking about AI, God knows what that's gonna bring. So, there's so <laughs> many different constructs of poetry. For me, for me, uh, the, the choice, the, the, the choice might be, uh, uh somehow emblemized by the fork in the road uh, that, on the one hand, gave us Robert Frost, and on the other hand, gave us Ezra Pound. Now, when I was in mm-hmm. grad school, I took great pleasure in trying to dope out Ezra Pound. And back in those days, if you mentioned Robert Frost, it was like somebody said, take out your coloring books and, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but But uh, later along, I taught Ezra Pound. And I did it with goodwill, but I said to myself, I don't give a damn about this stuff. I, the only challenge, the only uh, uh, pleasure I took was in deciphering it all, and life's kind of short uh, for that. Uh,
0: whereas in Frost,
1: who was, of course, the kind of uh, local spirit, the genius Loki in, in northern New England, uh, everybody, anybody can get something out of a Frost poem. You can take it to first grade. You can take it to the graduate school. You can take it to a union meeting. You can take it, as Lord knows, it's been done a thousand times with the road not taken, to retirement ceremonies, what have you. Now, each of those constituencies might have a different take, but at least, uh, as I say, they know where they are. They know who's talking. They know, uh, you know, kind of the conditions under which this uh, – uh, utterances has, has been made, uh, and I'm uh, I'm in the, in the frost camp. I really
0: am. Okay. Well, okay. well, we are halfway through the show already, so I want to take just a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk, go into a little more specifics and uh, you know the essence of a Sidney Lee poem, and then talk about a couple of them in your book that I really enjoy in particular. Okay.
1: Very good,
0: thank you. Okay, can everyone stay tuned? We'll be right back at a very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, bikeradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Sidney Lee, and we are talking about his newest book, What Shines? Aging with Optimism and Appreciation. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is sydneylee.net. And that's s y d n e y l e a dot net. Okay, with that, we're back, Sydney. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Great. Hello again. Um, okay. So, what would you say is the essence of a Sydney Lee poem? I mean, what what would you say distinguishes your work from others?
1: oh I, I think uh i i i think i think that, that you know the uh attention to my uh physical base uh and uh, uh, the landscape around northern new england uh, conditions a lot of what i say for me places almost the kind of character uh in my poetry um the uh I, I don't know if it's for me to say what distinguishes it. I'm sure there are readers out there say it's not very distinguished at all. But uh, uh, at any rate, uh, I think that, uh, that that seems to be what I'm I'm known for. I, somebody once described, and it's quoted on the website, unattributed, because I can't remember who said it, says, that I was a man in the woods with his head full of books, and a man in books with his head full of wood. <laughs> Uh, it sounds oddly. Uh-huh. I, uh, my ugly. My late friend Bill Matthews, a wonderful poet, uh, who was famous for his one-liners, said to me, uh, in a friendly way, he said, You know, a lot of your poetry could be summarized in a line from the teddy bear's picnic. I said, What do you mean? He said, If you went out of the woods today, you're in for a big surprise. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I've always borne that in mind, uh, important, yeah. uh, too seriously, but you know, w- when I write, um, I, we lost a, a very our nearest neighbor here in rural Vermont was a fifth generation Vermonter, modern Tank Hood was his name, uh, and uh, w- w- we lost him at the age of 97 a, a few years ago. Uh, he was a, a he was a real character. He was a real character. What he what he thought is what he said. When I showed up, he says, I hear you're a writer. I said, well, yeah. He said, well, I just want you to know I ain't going to read anything you ever wrote. <laughs> well, I said, join the crowd. <laughs> but I all I read is Blue and the Moor. He said, and if, once you get done reading him, you don't want to read nobody else. I said, well, okay. That's, that, to me, that's better than being bombed to a TV 24-7. And then if <laughs> he got older, he says, uh, I said, you're still reading Louis Lamour? I said, yeah, he says, I'm just down to two books. Said, I read one, and by the time I get into the second one, I've forgotten the first one, I can just go back and <laughs> But, uh, whenever I write a poem, I, I, though he, I think he was true to his word that, uh, that he didn't read anything that I'd written. When I write, I, I have take in mind, uh, thinking that if, if, uh, if he did read something of mine I'd like to think that he'd be able to get something out of it uh i, I want i want him to uh uh uh, uh you know I, that, that that i hope he uh, introduces a measure of humility into what i write and, uh, i had i you mind if i go off on these anecdotes uh no i, I
0: don't no no that's what makes that's what makes the uh, the show peace
1: Back in the day, when I was really kind of a closeted poet, I didn't let anybody know except my family that I was trying this thing out. Uh, the, uh, the poet, distinguished poet Richard Everhart was part of the Dartmouth faculty, and when people would come to read, <clears throat> afterwards he'd always have a reception at his, uh, house, uh, right down on the Connecticut River. Well, his wife, Betty Butcher, who had quite a bit of money from the Butcher Wax, uh, family, uh, decided she wanted to fund a program which specifically invited very young poets who had just published one book or something of that nature. And, uh, <clears throat> or in some cases just only had a contract for a book. And, uh, in that case, uh, in the case I'm remembering, two Two poets showed up. Uh, one was actually a guy I had known from graduate school named Jonathan Aaron. was a good poet, still going. Uh, and the other was a fellow whose name I won't mention in case he is still going. But he was—he uh he just defended every fiber in my being, not only with his poetry, but he gave a kind of little a Romeo reading, a very good-looking, well-built man. You know, his shirt unbuttoned to the navel and a looking intently into the eyes of the Pretty young women in that audience and so forth. Well, uh, afterwards, uh, the, this uh, friend of mine, who was the wife of my best friend, uh, I went to her and I said, Do you want to come down to the reception, you know, and get to know some of these people? And she said, Ah, you know, I really got to get home to the kids. I said, Well, just come down, you know, say hello and meet a couple of people, meet Epperhart, and then just go on home. Well, cut to the chase. Like, and I said, I I gotta go because I'm partly responsible for inviting this bleep. She said, oh, he's not a bleep. And I said, oh my god, don't tell me you fell for that act. Long story short, she ran off with him that very night. I mean, that very night. Which suggests, suggests, uh, and most of us kind of knew it, that their, her marriage and uh, my friends, (laughs) and uh, was on very shaky ground to begin with. Well, all right. Um, I wasn't responsible for that. I did feel a little bit like a, I don't know, a go-between to arrange this, this <laughs> elopement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, later on, uh, she came back to pick up some belongings. And uh, she had a little yellow Volkswagen bug, and uh, she pulled into the local gas station, service station, uh, where – uh, whose owner was an absolute character, just another one of these wonderful New England raconteurs. I used to stop in there, whether I needed gas or not, just to talk with them. He, they they were the first family to really kind of adopt me as an outsider. I, I was the best man in their son's wedding and so on and so forth. Well, uh, the, the yellow Volkswagen pulls in with her at the wheel, and he's sitting in the passenger seat, which – which sort of offended yeah. the, the gas station's employee's sense of the, uh, how the world should work. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, she got out to pump gas, and I was, you know, it was an awkward moment for me. He was inside with a radio on some motel playing, and he was just kind of bopping around in his feet. And uh, uh, the, the owner of the gas station had an assistant, Herbie, who was uh, filling up her gas tank, and he was kind of looking... Uh, Bemusedly at this fellow acting that way, and they pull, well, they pulled away, and, and uh, the owner came out and said, <laughs> uh, "So that's the guy um, X ran off on Y for." Her. And I said, "Well, yeah." And uh, and <laughs> the the guy's been pumping her. Yeah, she's his dumb-looking bleep. <laughs> and the, the, guy, the "Operative up New in England. He do any things? He worked. I said, well, George, uh, he's 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 a poet. He said, he's said, "A poet." He looked like a million poet. <laughs> I thought, I went back into my closet for a while, but uh, again, it's one of the things that has uh, uh, allowed me not to think I was so important and quote sensitive uh, that, uh, that that I couldn't laugh at myself a little bit. Yeah.
0: Mm, wow. Yeah, and, you know, and again, that's one of those situations where you know you would have had no idea kind of what was being set up with you know cords and <laughs> <maybe> that kind <laughs> of speaker and but but and, and the lives have changed. Yeah, and Ripple yeah. has um So let's let's talk a little bit about what signs. What what would you say the Book is about. I mean, what, what is that kind of a theme, if there is, for the book?
1: Um, I think you're right that it uh, it's, it's it's full of gloom and doom in many places. But I I hope that the the arc is toward guarded optimism. I mean, I and 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 in my case, gratitude. I I, I really have lived a, a capacious life and. Uh, a lot of it was due to the kind of coincidence we've been discuss, uh, discussing, uh, happenstance, uh, physical location, health, what have you. Uh, so, it, uh, it is, it's probably as retrospective a book as I've written. I've always had a bit of a retrospective cast, but, uh, you know, as I, you know, at 80 and in the years four or five years preceding the publication of this book in which I was writing these poems, you know, uh, I could kind of, I, I was kind of waiting for that, that knock on the door. <laughs> <and get> <laughs> <myself>. <laughs> uh, so, you know, one in that situation, I don't dwell on that. I, I'm not f- afraid of it and uh, and I don't mourn it, uh, except for, you know, this like is my kid's grandkids' wife right. and right. good friends. Uh, but, uh at any rate, uh, under those conditions, I, I went way, way back. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I think maybe the earliest recollection is uh, uh, 1949, which is the title of one of the poems. Uh, and uh, I, I think one of the things that interested me was the distinction between how I regarded things at the age I remember and how I look at them now. Uh, and uh you know how I look at my uh my siblings then, how I look at them now, how I look at my late father then, and particularly my mother late mother uh now. Uh and that sort of thing. So and then I it moves uh in the direction of uh i c I I kinda as I say, a kind of uh guarded optimism. Um You know, when I was in my twenties, like many people in the '60s, like, well, I would go out and change the whole world. Like, I don't have any illusions that I ever did or that I ever will. I mean, I tried to do my part in certain respects, Uh, but uh, I can I can be attentive to those around me. I can be attentive to my own blessings. In fact, my wonderful publisher, uh, the director. Martha Rhodes at Forward books they do nothing but poetry she said you know I counted them up and you've got like 15 uh, mentions of the word blessed in your manuscript that might be a little bit too much so I had to go back and kind of uh, rephrase some of those some of those (laughs) (laughs) instances I did leave in a poem that's called blessed Uh, and uh, and and uh, uh, so I I, as I say I, I think it's uh you know, here's here's where I was. Here's what made me. Uh, I kind of understand it. I kind of don't understand it. But look, look what I have now. Of course, the final sequence in the in in, in, uh, in the uh, book, Robert, is is called animate objects, and it was you know it was I know, it was written relatively quickly, and uh it was written at the height of the COVID plague. Well, my wife and I are both retired, so uh, and we were pretty much alone in-house. the uh, And uh, she does a lot of uh, really commendable non-profit work, a lot of which could be done remotely as many of us were doing in those days. So she had fish to fry, and I was writing and so on and so forth. And I, you know, uh, I decided I, was, I wasn't was getting out the way I usually do. I wasn't seeing people the way I usually do. I wasn't even hiking very much. And... Uh, I said, well, there must be something I can write about around here. So I, 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 I went around the house and I looked at that sequence is called animate objects as opposed to inanimate objects, uh, which all of them were. <laughs> like, uh, an old, an antique carved wooden duck decoy, uh, a model ship made out of nothing but cattle horn, uh, an old grandfather clock, I, it came down through my family From way, way back, Uh, uh, a faulty burner on the stove. I mean, just random stuff. And I uh, would—I'm not passing myself off as some kind of a a Buddhist meditator or something, but I would kind of meditate on each of them. I think, you know, each of these objects has some kind of story working within it. Now, I'm going to write, start writing, and see if I can unearth what that is. So that—that's. that's the way that that sequence got generated, and, and even it at the at the very end, in uh, spite of the horrors that were going on internationally with regard to this horrible virus, uh, uh, it, it, that one ends up on a on a bright note with the arrival of the uh, spring goldfinch uh, at our feeder. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't yeah. know what that is.
0: Question, uh yeah, yeah no no it, it does no it, it does and and you know the i mean it's funny when you were talking about fish to fry <laughs> i mean i immediately went to your 1949 <laughs> poem you know yeah. where in it you um, the wow. the yeah. talk about a, a picture with your mother and a bucket of fish right <laughs> so i just right right um that just kind of goes to show the the impact of your the imagery that you create when 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 reading your work. Well, thank you. I I was raised in
1: uh, uh, Exurban, uh, Philadelphia. I spent most of my time uh, leisure time, uh, summertime, every weekend, all the holidays uh, at my bachelor uncle's farm, which is farther out in Montgomery County, uh, which is kind of my imaginative home for the most part. And also that uh, this house that had belonged to my father's father, which they kept we called it the cabin. It was a crude kind of thing and it had a pond on it. And I, I loved it out there. It was quite quite remote and uh, I've always had a yen for, for, for the backwoods, uh and, and so on. Um so uh this, uh, that poem you refer to uh, remembers that pond uh, and uh, fishing there, uh, and uh, uh, so that's that's the con- that's the context uh, uh, of it, and of several others in the book. Um, there are many that uh, that remember my uncle's farm, if only obliquely. But uh, yeah. I don't. I didn't find anything particularly interesting in some. Suburban Philadelphia so to write about, uh, and
0: uh,
1: <laughs> I left in, uh, when I was 17, and uh, now that my parents are dead and my siblings dispersed, I, I don't, I don't feel bad. In part because if I look at the countryside around my uncle's beautiful farm there, and you know, there's staples and Domino's Pizza and what have you, and uh, it just kind of breaks my heart, but. Uh,
0: it's in yeah, my mind. Yeah. it's my imagination poem, so to speak. Yeah, well, the also the other poem before we get out well on time, it's like ten minutes left. Um the other poem I wanted to talk a little bit about was actually the one that you wrote with uh, the title of the book, What Signs yeah. and, and you dedicated that one to Sister Jane. Um yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. I found that one really interesting, and it's, I'm going to read kind of the first line. Um, astonishing this never an effort to have had a happy childhood. Why does it matter now? Why will yourself into all of that forgetting? And, and then you go on to talk about, you know, your perspective as a child and, and, and question whether or not that was an accurate perspective. and. You know, and I kind of go back to the the beginning, and does it really matter? Um, you know, yeah. and I've done this show for 12 years, and I've had so many guests on that just um, harp on, you know, the past, you know, and, yeah. and the childhood. And, and many times, you know, they are difficult, and, you know, people learn, and, you know, their challenges as a child become their, their life goals, you know, as far as, um you know healing from that as well as helping others heal from similar experiences but when I was reading that that poem, I thought you know um that it really kind of um gives a um a perspective of you know that you know that's the past you know and and you know the past is the past and you know we're we're here in the now and um you know and and perspectives will be different from Every single person involved in a past um, experience yeah. true enough
1: uh, but I, and yet I think that there are certain things that are hardwired into you when you're when you're really young and you, you carry them along with you and uh, in my case uh, with my my mom was quite a wonderful woman uh, in many ways, but uh, she was uh, addicted to alcohol and uh, and uh, it, it, Made her miserable, I'm sure, and it made life at home complex. Uh, to use a genteel word, uh, which is one of the reasons I love to go to my uncle's farm. Right? Could be uh, a kid. I mean, her story goes. All the uh, all all our stories go back generations. In her case, she was a brilliant high school student, and she had actually been admitted to Radcliffe, which was kind of the
0: mm-hmm. well,
1: was the Harvard of the of the day. And her bachelor uncle was the one with the farm who. Who raised her, said, well, women don't go to college. That's it. So mm-hmm. she was always asking me to work harder, to apply myself, as I mentioned very early in the show. Uh, and uh, so when uh, when she passed on, I mean, I, I really, I loved the woman, but I really had some deep resentments about her, too, because in the matter of addicts, she would behave in inappropriate mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and shocking ways so on, uh, but uh, then I, my sister Jane, you know, after I, I'd gotten into recovery myself, I mean, I, uh, but I still harbored these resentments and my sister said, well, when, when is it going to be your fault? <laughs> well, that was a uh, question, um, because she had suffered much more from my mother's alcoholism than I had. She was the youngest. Mm-hmm. I was the old. I was out there before. I was there before. Really? hit home, and I, uh, I, I realized, you know, I couldn't change this woman once she was alive. How the hell am I going to change her once she's dead? Uh, mm-hmm. And you possibly be resentful of a woman who had the same had the same addiction that you have, but was not braced with recovery the way you have been. And from that moment on, uh, I had a very different perspective on her. So that poem looks back uh you know uh, there's some misery in it, but there's also some things that that shine, and uh there's uh, something between uh affection, despair, and nothingness uh, that uh, that uh, climbs into it but they you know I, I one of the things that when I was made poet Vermont I went to all, as many community libraries as we have three hundred of them are in this tiny little state of six hundred and fifty thousand people. And I went to hundred and fifteen of them and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, i uh i i I didn't read my poetry so much as I talked about what I thought poetry could do that other kinds of discourse could not and one of them, I thought, was uh, you know it can keep several ideas uh some in fact in pure conflict with one another, alive at once without seeming just incoherent. Um, one example would be would be uh, the frost famous the road not taken which is trotted out at these uh, ceremonies as an example yeah. of knowing whether the individual individualism and so on which yeah. it is to some degree but it's also but but it questions itself as you know, I took the one that was traveled by
0: but earlier in
1: the poem it says both that morning equally lay and leaves them step at trodden black and as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same so Was it whimsy or was it determination? That's up to you to decide, reader. Uh, It was maybe a little bit of both, is what he's saying. And uh, in in, in this poem, there's uh, there's love, there's a little remnant resentment, Uh, there's a little bit of mourning for my father who died way too young. Uh, And uh, all of these things have something to do with each other, but they're not, it's not one thing or another, uh, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and you in that one, you um, talk about at least she tried. You know, as you know, the idea yeah, of one one doing the best they can with their situation, with their their life circumstances. So, um, and and I think, yeah,
1: you know, she absolutely did the best she possibly could, and there were many ways in which she was a good mother, and and her. Her exhortation to apply myself was probably, probably, <laughs> although it was overdone and it was hyperbolic. <laughs> I, you know, I might very easily have just taken, well, taken, t- t- taken, 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 the my road taken might have been a lot different from what it was. But she, for her, having been cheated out of education, uh, as mm-hmm. long as I did well in school, she didn't care about much else. Uh, I yeah. was kind of yeah. her vicar. You know, I put I, 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 her racehorse. I was the oldest one. And uh, she made it clear that I had to go to a so called good school. I went to Yale, uh, at <laughs> which there were plenty of dumb people, believe me. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've, I've uh, visited a hundred university college campuses in America, and the smart kids are the smart kids everywhere. That's one thing I've ever right. learned. Uh, but for for her, it was just like, you know, I, I kind of wanted to go to Cornell, but in those days, uh, because it was more rural, you know, but in those days, it was, it was the so-called Big Three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. You know, that was the Big Three, so I had to go to one. I had this <laughs> impression that Princeton was for Playboys that Harvard was for Bookworms, so that Yale must be somewhere in between. I never even visited the place. I just went there. Uh, wow. So I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand. Uh, you know
0: where her, you
1: know, her urgency for academic achievement mm-hmm.
0: uh, came from. Absolutely. Well, we're we're down toward the end of the show, Sydney. So what what do you hope um, a reader will take away from, or, or maybe you know um, how your book might influence a reader? Well,
1: I, of course, I hope they will. Take it away and say, well, why hasn't this guy won the Nobel Prize yet? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's likely to happen. Uh, I don't know. It's uh, really a hard question to answer in a general way. I just hope that they find yeah. at least uh, half a dozen poems in there to which they can relate uh, personally and uh, that it'll shed a little bit light on their own experience. Uh, as uh, as poets like Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost and Robert Penn Warren have, uh, and uh, uh, Adrian Rich has shed light on my own experience. Uh, you know, I have a certain number of poems that I just carry around with me, and, and a whole wealth of them, from back in the 19th century, too. Uh, but I, I think they, they, they somehow make me a little bit more alert.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I know that, like I said, you know, there have been several instances that I've, when I do my little nature walks in the morning, that you know there will be a line or two or an image, you know that that you um, kind of put forth in a poem that'll kind of pop into my head, and that makes me smile because it's just,
1: you know, it's a it's
0: an awareness that, um, you know, that I'm taking notice, you know, of something that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. So.
1: But. Oh, absolutely. I, there's a poem by called the need of being versed in country things and it it takes place in a, a, a at a slate where a house is burned down and and now uh, now the chimney was all of the house that stood like uh, like a pistol after the pedal pedals go and I can't mm-hmm. and they talk about he talks about a a, a, a hand pump and a, a hand pump flung up an awkward arm you know uh, just a Zero in on that tension to, to, to detail always rivets me in a poem. I hope I've got some
0: of it. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time today, sir. I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: I really enjoyed it, too, and uh, thanks for an interesting discussion.
0: You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Sidney Lee, and we've been talking about his newest book, What Shines? Aging with Optimism and Appreciation. Do pick it up. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Um, Again, for more information, you can visit his website, which is sydneylee.net, and that's S-Y-D-N-E-Y-L-E-A.net. Everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again,